Avery. That's not how it goes. It goes, I'm Avery, and I'm Jesse, and I'm Jim. <laughs> and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Avery, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, why do you have us say our names and then ask us to introduce ourselves after that? Oh, but you could go into more detail. Like, you could say, you know, I'm a programmer who lives in Oakland, if you wanted to sound like a douchebag. <laughs> well... I certainly won't be saying that about myself. <laughs> I make music. Um, you can find my music. My name is Avery Burke. Go find my music. Oh, oh that's the whole thing, right? Okay. Um, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I. Uh, what if I said my social security number? Would uh, it get edited out? I would ask Esper to scramble the numbers. Is that actually it? <laughs> Yes, that is my real social security number. Oh my god! <laughs> for, for, first time on podcast. <laughs> okay, Esper, there were too many sixes in that. Just cut the whole thing. <laughs> but scrambling it would give it the same value. <laughs> That's right. You could scramble it and potentially come up with the same number. Yeah, that would be okay. Okay, uh, Jesse, are you also a programmer in Oakland? No. Are we, are we ready to start on some topics? Yeah. Yes. Oh my god, all the topics are gone, except for the ones we're going to do. What? I don't even... What does that mean? <laughs> uh, some Somebody's been editing the spreadsheet while I wasn't looking. That's why Jesse's been so quiet. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Jesse, your topic is Laserdisc. You guys know what this is? Uh, yes, but you should explain it anyway. Laserdisc is an obsolete home video format that competed mostly against VHS that was for nerds. And I really like them. I have a little collection of them. And uh, I watch movies on Laserdisc uh, on a reasonably frequent basis, and I think it's kind of fun. So uh, I recommend to listeners, if they have uh, a Laserdisc player that they can get their hands on, maybe to give it a try, because it's, uh, it's kind of neat. They are the same size as vinyl records, but they look like CDs, and uh, they got a movie on them. Yeah. Once in a while, they had video games on them. Yeah, there was that, um, the Laser Active, right? It was uh, like a... Laserdisc player that was also a Sega Genesis and a Super Nintendo or something, and then there was like some arcade games where there was a Laserdisc involved. This I'm already knocking us off topic, but hey, does anybody remember this game from the '90s that was you were a time traveling cowboy? It's an arcade game, and it was it was projected as a as a hologram. I think it was on Laserdisc because it was it felt just like Dragon Slayer or one of or dragon's lair or whichever one the the cartoon on laserdisc was that you could play uh it looks like this is called time traveler or hologram time traveler is a laserdisc interactive movie arcade game i have seen this but i have never seen it working like this is one of those games where you go to california extreme and it's always there but games always break in transport and so like the first half of the first day of california extreme is like a bunch of dudes fixing the arcade games that they just broke because they transported them to a ballroom. Well, in this one, it's like a laser disc, and so it, it's probably a probably there's nobody around that can fix laser disc anymore. Right, right. Yeah, you you can't buff out those scratches. No, there's uh, there's definitely people fixing laser disc players. Uh, I'll tell you that. <laughs> if you uh, yeah, there's you know there's there's people on forums who will tell you exactly what what gear you need to replace or what size belt you need to get your broken laser disc player working again. Yeah. I will note that um, Dragon Slayer slash Dragon's Lair came up, and uh, that came up the last time that Avery and I were on this show on the 
hit episode, the Great Mongolian Bag yak. Potato Sack Yak Race. Bag Sack? That's it. So, listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, you've made a crucial mistake and you're living your life wrong, so go listen to that episode right now. You really do need to listen to that episode in order to understand this episode. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of continuity. Yeah. It's part of the Topic Lord's extended universe. Yeah, you'll be completely lost. It's just... It's just nonsense now. My favorite thing about Laserdiscs, my favorite Laserdisc factoid is that to make double-sided Laserdiscs, they make two one-sided Laserdiscs and glue them together. I believe that is true (laughs) of CDs as well. Uh, If so, then they must do it much more finely and precisely. Yeah, it's true that um, many Laserdiscs are nowadays in kind of bad shape and the playback is a little bad, especially ones that were made in the United States instead of Japan, because, yeah, it was, like, frequently not done well, and uh, the metal foil that's sandwiched between the two layers of plastic is not completely isolated from the air, and so it starts to rust, and so um, some laser discs, and it happens with some specific movies more than others, where um, it's really common for there to be like a lot of white snow sort of static on the screen caused by this. Yeah. Do you know, there's a scene in THX 1138 that's set in a in a white room and there's the background sound on the soundtrack is rain. And the reason they did that is because they thought that uh, as the film got more scratched, you'd see it really prominently against the white background. And so it would look like rain. And so they put rain noises into the background to enhance this, this uh, experience. Oh, weird. That's like, yeah. that's so, yeah. In- integrating the likely degradation of the viewing medium into the, the piece itself is uh that's some next level stuff that I would not have expected. George Lucas was thinking about in 1973 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's really neat. Yeah. Especially considering he didn't seem to, respect to the likely degradation of the medium like in the 90s when it came to adding (laughs) (laughs) adding a bunch of stuff that was gonna look bad in 10 years yeah yeah i uh i think maybe my most prized laser disc i have some like um so the criterion collection got their start on laser discs i got some of those and some cool box set stuff but uh one of the later u.s releases was the matrix i have that on laser disc and that's like super cool because it feels particularly matrixy to to watch <laughs> the matrix on this like weird weird obsolete format in fact i have the matrix on i think every format it was released on what i would like is for someone to loan me a betamax vcr so that i can make a beta tape of the matrix and then get like a custom made slipcase for it <laughs> uh, but it turns out that like it's hard to come by good working Betamax VCRs, and particularly where I live, there's like a guy who has 400 of them in his garage or whatever, and that's why you can't find them here. Oh, he's going to jack up the prices on the on, on Betamax because he's the only dealer in town? I guess so. I don't know that he's even selling them. I think he's just a real grade A weirdo. Just a collector, yeah. <laughs> Do you have more than one Laserdisc player? Uh, that's a good question. I used to have four. Like, I had one that I used in three spares because I found them at thrift stores or whatever. And I was like, well, I can't let this, I can't leave this here because someday mine might break. Um, and then I decided when I moved last year that it was uh, absurd to have four Laserdisc players, all of which are bulky and heavy. Uh, so I think I got rid of the spares. Uh, maybe I have one spare left now. I'm not too sure. 
I was really hoping that you would turn out to be the uh, the other weird guy right. in your neighborhood that was <laughs> <laughs> hoarding laser disc players and then judging the Betamax guy. No, there are. Um... Well, it makes perfect sense to have four hundred laser disc players. <laughs> <laughs> They frequently break, and if you want to watch this format... Yeah. <laughs> there is, like, one really high-end player that I think was only released in Japan or something, but there's there's few enough of those that they're getting to be, like, Stradivarius violins or something, where, you know, everyone, <laughs> everyone knows who has one and, like, where the where they are in case you need one. This whole subculture of beta... Uh, or of, uh, of uh, Laserdisc collectors is... This is an interesting thought to me. Yeah, I think um, there's there's a couple different paths that people take to get into it. One of them is like Star Wars weirdo, <laughs> because you know there was for so long people were upset about the special edition Star Wars movies, and people wanted what back then Lucasfilm nowadays I guess Disney to uh, to release the original Star Wars trilogy in like nice quality, like in as an actual DVD, which they never really did. They put it on bonus discs in some in some set that they put out. As like, uh, here it is, shut up, stop tell- telling us about this or whatever. But actually what's on those discs is just the, the Laserdisc transfers. Um, so if, <laughs> right. if you don't like, if you don't like that, um, and especially before those came out, you could watch the original Star Wars movies before they got tinkered with a lot by watching them on Laserdisc. So a lot of people get into Laserdisc that way. Then there's like, uh, real, real deep, hardcore anime weirdos. Because there's like some anime that's only on Laserdisc or some version of it that's only on Laserdisc because like there were copyright problems with the soundtrack or something. And so the original soundtrack version of this anime show from the 80s was only on Laserdisc. That happens sometimes. Um, and then there's, I think, maybe the third stream of Weirdo is um, like Criterion Collection Super Collector who has all the Blu-rays but also has all the DVDs and all the Laserdiscs. All different sizes of disc. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty tough because I think there's like there's one or two Criterion Laserdisc releases that like got recalled or something, so they're they're uh, you know close to unobtainable, and people only buy the these discs so that they can say they have the complete set of them or whatever, but they cost like thousands of dollars. Right. The Criterion collection is huge. Like very recently, YouTube cued me into the fact that all of the Godzilla movies are on the Criterion collection. <laughs> yeah, that's that... true. Uh, there are a lot of criteria. <laughs> yeah, the the laser just catalog is is approachable. I'm looking at it here. It looks like maybe there's there's 384 distinct spine numbers among the laser discs. So that's how many there are there, but there are many, many more DVDs and Blu-rays, I believe. Okay, okay. Okay. For a moment I was picturing somebody with like with like, you know, through glass darkly and um all of the Godzilla movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would, I would be well. I'm not sure actually if you can watch all the original sort of Showa era Godzilla movies on Laserdisc or not. Laserdisc was bigger in Japan than it was in the United States, and so maybe the coverage of Japanese movies is better because there's more space on the disc. Yeah, I mean back back in the '90s when when Criterion was putting these out on Laserdisc, it was the only way to watch these like kind of art house picks in the U.S. out on home video, right? Because oftentimes they were, these were foreign movies that were like never released in the United States or were only released, uh-huh. you know, went to, came to theaters once in the past. And if you didn't see them, you didn't see them. Yeah. So in the, in the days before like DVDs and in particular, like streaming and like file sharing, I think if you're a real big time movie nerd, like this was the only way to see a lot of stuff. Right. 
That's interesting. My other favorite Laserdisc trivia is that there are two formats, constant angular velocity and constant linear velocity. Yeah, you got to love the branding on that, right? What? Yeah, CAV and CLV. <laughs> Calculus. Right. The reason that these are different is that uh, back when back in, in the era we're talking about, there wasn't enough RAM to have a frame buffer. So they were just the, – the readers were just – reading data off the disk and sending it right to the TV. And what this means is that if in a constant angular velocity disk, the disk can uh, just keep spinning and keep the laser in place and keep showing the same frame. So these disks are pausable. And the constant linear velocity disks, you can't pause, you can only stop and then the image goes away. Oh, wow. And the other thing you can do with a constant angular velocity disk is that um, you can you can rewind them. You can have uh, – and it doesn't have the weird like VHS rewinding artifacts that I still don't understand. It's actually perfectly – perfect clarity. It's like running film backwards. Right. And you can um, – CAV discs, you can you can like step through frames on them. Right. Uh, because each frame is like in a predictable location on the disc or whatever and the laser can move there in one step sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then stay there. You can usually pause CLV discs, but it's like a feature of the player, right? So it's like, and you, I think on some players, you see the same effect that you see on VHS where the, the like vertical resolution drops by half. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it's, you know, on VCRs, that's because like that was, that was as much signal as your VCR could, could buffer or something, right? I think something like that happens there too. Like it's, it's how good the pause works on CLV discs is, is a feature of the, the player you have <laughs> right 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 so this is a format of both the player and the disc you have to get a, a constant linear velocity i actually don't know i assume like my dad's laser disc player could play both formats ah. and i assume yeah, I, that most could i think that's true except perhaps of the very early ones right right so the downside in case because uh, i didn't make that part clear the downside of uh of constant angular velocity is that you can only have half an hour of movie per side of, d- of the disc, whereas uh, CLV could store an hour. But because of the trick, like frame stepping and nice pauses and stuff, CAV was like considered better. So particularly long movies might come on several discs. Right. Uh, and you would have to... One one thing that I think is actually a little bit charming about Laserdisc is that you have to um, change the sides of the disc when you get to the end of, of a side. Um, yeah, you got to go flip it over. Although I don't wow. have to because I have a fancy player that, that late late in the, the life cycle of the format, some players introduced so-called both sides play where <laughs> it's flipping the, the laser on its little sled inside the machine instead of flipping the disc. So it like gets to the end of the disc and then it pauses and you hear like the machine like configuring, reconfiguring itself inside and then it starts playing again and it's because like the yeah the laser is flipped over to the other side of the disc. I just assumed that there would be two lasers one on each side and that similar to to your ability to like single step the video or rewind it you could immediately switch sides and fl- start playing the other direction. You could see I don't think that's how they work and I'm just guessing that probably like the laser was expensive or something and so it was like cheaper to build a mechanism to slide the laser over than to have two of them. I guess so. Here, I was hoping that it would be controlled by like a robotic arm and that the, the disc itself would flip over, but it would do it automatically. 
<laughs> like yeah, that, that would be so satisfying if it like if it ejected the disc, but then it like also ejected a little arm, like the telescoped out of the machine, grabbed the disc, flipped it over. Yeah. It like flipped yeah. the disc like a coin, and it just landed perfectly <laughs> in the slot. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so good. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes. Ready. Every your topic is tracing the lineage of racehorses on Wikipedia. A friend sent to me uh, just a quick little article about a racehorse whose name was P-O-T and then followed by eight O's. So the racehorse's name is Potatoes. Oh. Because there are eight O's after the T. I have dyslexia, so for a long time I just stared at this and thought, Potu. Yeah, 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 like like when at? like when the, they announced the name of the Wii, and everybody was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I'm glad everybody had that collective like "Welcome to my world" moment. I, I remember seeing a forum post about it, and like, okay, is this a typo for World War II, or is it a typo <laughs> for Wi-Fi? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would have known how to pronounce that again. Dyslexia. I don't know that I would have known how to pronounce the Wii without somebody else there to tell me how it was supposed to be said yeah no that's not your dyslexia that's just uh it's just being a person you know for a long time uh in san francisco about 10 years ago there was this um ad for snickers and it was words just written in the snickers font on a on billboards do you remember this uh i don't think so uh and there are two things about that that got me one is like snickers is such a strong brand that you don't even have to have the name Snickers. You could just show the font and people know that it's an ad for the for a Snickers bar. Right. But all but also I couldn't read any of them because of the font and because the words are all squished together. And so it just it felt like the whole world was in on some kind of joke that I couldn't understand. It's yeah. like these it was it was very it was uh, it was a disconcerting experience. You gotta find the they live sunglasses and figure yes. out what those words say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need those sunglasses so bad. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking before the show that the, the only thing I know about thoroughbred race horsing is that thoroughbred horse racing, race horsing, I like both. Uh, race horsing? Yeah, is that um, I think definitionally all thoroughbred race horses are the descendants of three particular stallions. And so do we want to take any bets on which of the three or perhaps a multiple of them appear in the paternal line of Pote 8 O's? Their names are the Godolphin Arabian, the Darley Arabian, and the Briarly Turk. I want it to be the Briarly Turk. All right. Jim? I want it to be all three. Okay, so Potatoes' father was Eclipse. Eclipse's father was Marska? Marski? Marski's father was Squirt. Squirt's father was Bartlett's Childers. <laughs> Bartlett's Childers' <laughs> father was the Darley Arabian. So, wow. Listeners, if you got it right, uh, mark that down in your exam book now. <laughs> and again, you're going to need to refer back to the previous episode. This illustrates exactly what I was doing with this, is if you just keep pressing the button for Sire for some of these racehorses, you can get back to the 1700s, and there is usually a photograph or before photographs paintings for each one of these horses, um, and usually at least a paragraph or two about them. And it, it, it is um, astonishing to me the level of care that has gone, the, like the fact that we, like I can't remember, I don't know the names of my great-grandparents, and I definitely don't know the names of my great-great-grandparents, but I can trace back and see pictures of racehorses going back for 300 years. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they were like his racehorses are worth more than people. <laughs> yeah. There's uh I guess I was in Iceland a couple of weeks ago and they're like uh the genealogies of Icelanders are well understood and I think if you have like a national ID number you can log into some database that just like will show you your entire ancestry or something. <laughs> Yeah, they have a dating app, too, in Iceland that tells you whether or not the person that you're going on a date with is related to you. <laughs> right, right, right. Because it's a problem. Uh, so my favorite thoroughbred racehorse is Man of War. Let's see uh, what happens if we go through the sires here. So Man of, War's, uh, Man of War lived in 1920, and uh, his father was Fair Play. Fair Play's father was Hastings. This is going to be a longer one. Hastings to Spendthrift to Australian... To West Australian, to Melbourne. These are these horses are all named after places in Australia, uh, and it looks like Melbourne was not notable enough to have a Wikipedia article, so we're out of luck here. Oh no! Oh no! Someone must have uh, the lineage documented, or otherwise this wouldn't be considered a thoroughbred. Right. In fact, uh, the first paragraph here says, after his retirement from racing, he had some success as a sire of winners in England and France and was largely responsible for the survival of the Godolphin Arabian's sire line. So there you go. Oh, the Godolphin Arabian. Yep. It's interesting to me that these, the the initial three sires don't have, or the founding sires here don't have, uh, don't have fun names like other racehorses. They've got titles. They hadn't invented fun yet. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be like named after whoever owned them, and at least like uh, some of them. Yeah, like the the Byerly Turk was allegedly like war booty from the the Battle of Vienna. Like someone just stole a Turkish horse or whatever after they beat the Turks, and that's how that you know how that uh, that Turkish horse ended up in. Wow. Wait, so this horse was named War Booty? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that is a good horse name though, isn't it? <laughs> this this was the um the Turk the Dyerly Turk? No, that's the Dyerly Byerly B Y E R L Y. Uh the biographical details of the stallion are the subject of much speculation. Ooh. The entry in the general stud book simply states Byerly Turk was Captain Byerly's charger in Ireland in King William's Wars, sixteen eighty nine, etc. Wow, so he's a war horse. Yeah. Also, there's something called the stud book. Yep, the general stud book. It's like the, the general stud book, the genealogy book of British and Irish thoroughbred racehorses, I guess. So this is like the the Icelandic genealogy database, but for horses. <laughs> Excellent. The fact that there is a, a painting for each one of these is also pretty amazing to me. Yeah. Do you wonder if any of them are like much like post date the life of the horse significantly, but like had, had you know someone did the illustration for a book or something. And then yeah, right. like the, yeah. the horse got so famous afterwards. Yeah. They had to taxidermy the horse so that they could paint it later. So I'm thinking about how, uh, like, a lot of the famous mathematicians from the 18th and 19th century, like, the, their portraits are just made up because, like, there were no good portraits of them and they live before photography or whatever. So it's, like, funny that these horses are, they're, like, likenesses are better recorded than many prominent human beings. Right. There's that famous portrait of Euler. That's tr that's real, right? Uh, I believe so. With the weird headgear he's got on. With the weird headgear, and he's like, it looks like he's winking. Uh, I've always read that's because he went blind in one eye from doing, from staying up for like three days straight doing logarithms for some 
navigational thing. Is, is it Lagrange who's like I can't remember. There's there's one who's like portrait is based on an error. Like the portrait you see of him is actually based on a picture of someone else who had the same name. <laughs> uh, I can't remember if this if this was Lagrange or not. You know, it's crazy is that if you go on Wikipedia, you can trace the sires of all the famous mathematicians <laughs> down through the years. And there's a portrait for right, each one. You're not allowed to be a mathematician unless you're descended from these three particular mathematicians. <laughs> there is, uh, you joke, but that's basically true. There's, um, there's a database, but it goes by like who your doctoral dissertation supervisor was. And there's, yeah, there is a database of, of more or less every prominent living mathematician, and you can trace them mostly back to Gauss and Euler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thoroughbred mathematicians. Exactly. <laughs> I finally am looking at the POTU page on Wikipedia, and I, I didn't. I missed the part where this is from. He was born in 1773. Yeah, which it just it delights me that they were making terrible puns even back then. Yeah, I like that the deadpan introductory paragraph of the article that says he is best known for the unusual spelling of his name, pronounced <laughs> potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's also alternative spellings for his name. <laughs> right. Pot dash numeral eight dash O's. Right, right. And then all the variations you can think of of various yes. punctuations. And... Yeah. So I guess this this must have been around when people started coming up with crazy names for their horses. Oh, his offspring include Nightshade, Asparagus, Waxy, Sister to Edwin, Champion, Tyrant, Parasol, and Mandane. Do, do you think... Roller derby names took inspiration from uh, goofy horse names. No, but they should have. What are famous roller derby names? Let's see. Uh, I, famous. There's this tradition of of choosing pseudonyms in roller derby that comes from when roller derby was like a sports entertainment thing rather than an actual sport. That are like usually cheesy puns. Yeah. Of course, I can't think of any good ones off the top of my head now. There was a. I, I found at one point. Um, a database of like because there's a registry, uh, so that people don't take each other's roller derby names. And I found at one point the database of all roller derby names, and I can't find it now. But the two that I remember really hitting me hard as really really effective memorable puns were Bell Right Hooks and Cuban Menstrual Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Cuban Menstrual Crisis. This is like, do you know about the clown registry where there's famous circus <laughs> right. clowns are painted on eggs? Right, yeah, that's what? how they... Right, right, so they don't copy each other's faces. There's a registry oh. where you, you paint your face paint pattern on an egg and, and, and it gets stored in a vault in Fort Knox or something. In a terrifying vault. That's amazing. I wonder if this like predates widespread literacy or something, so... Instead of a description of your of your face paint, you just literally like copied it onto an egg and send it somewhere. That's pretty funny. It must have been really challenging to like send an egg somewhere though without it being crushed. Well, I mean, it's like a wooden egg. Oh, okay. Uh, I really like the idea that it predates literacy. That. <laughs> oh, does this still exist for juggalos? <laughs> Well, no, I think the juggalos probably like fight or something over over their over their face paint. Right, like you probably can claim the right to have a certain face paint pattern by just beating on other juggalos. Yeah, or most most liberally distribute fago onto a crowd or something. 
All right, I found the database, and now I need to figure out how to get it into Skype because I found it on the wrong computer. Oh, there's a link to the WFTDA Roller Derby Rules, my favorite document, where this year they introduced an entirely new concept of the pack having a, quote, established speed, unquote, that I'm sure is going to be really annoying for referees to try to figure out what that's supposed to mean because people uh, are bad at making rules. (laughs) I got to say that a lot of these ones aren't very good. Yeah, no, no, they're, as you would expect, some people are better at puns than other people are. Nerd of Prey is kind of funny, I like that. Thank goodness we edit this show. Yes, I was just thinking about how much of the show seems to turn into just looking at other things on the internet. Wait, nothing sweet about bees. This is a bizarre <laughs> name. That That is much more a racehorse name than a... It's like a very short poem, not a pun. (laughs) (laughs) Eon Flux You Up. Eon Flex, Eon Flux You Up, Eon Trucks. Notorious B.I. Itch is like, okay, you tried something. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, we've got this whole series, Anaphylaxis. Okay, all right. That's that's like a, a successful pun. Yeah. So a whole bunch of agents here. Agonies. Anger issues. That one's kind of kind of nice because it's got "ger" in the middle, like a growl. Yeah, listeners, if you're a roller derby player and we've said one of your uh, roller derby names and we didn't think it was good, write in and tell us. <laughs> then you win a prize. Call in now. Fifth caller wins a T-shirt. Are we are we ready for another topic? Yes. I don't even remember what our topic was. Uh, racehorses. It was tracing the lineage of racehorses. <laughs> I only know this because I was looking at the topic bucket to figure out what the next topic is. Uh, My topic is bread is too wide to fit in toasters. I don't know what happened to bread. I remember when bread would fit in your toaster and you could toast it and then you'd have toast. Nowadays, maybe I'm just buying the wrong bread, but like the bread we get is just twice as wide as a toaster. And so you have to like cut it in half or you have to like flip it over halfway through I, I, I'm convinced that this is like, this is bread makers taking cues from filmmakers where they're looking over there like, oh, people love widescreen. People, <laughs> the, the wider it is, the better. And so let's make our bread even wider. Wide format bread. 4K bread. Yeah. So I think if you go and get like your your standard loaf of Wonder Bread, that's going to fit in your standard toaster still. But I right. think what's happening is that like, yeah, the the basic 4-3 bread. Yeah, people don't want to eat that anymore because it's, like, clearly from space. Like, it's not real food. Uh, right. And so, but, like, the toaster spec has never been re-standardized on a wider format, you know? So, you're getting you're getting toasters designed, you know, built, built in a factory in China on a design that's existed for 60 years when everyone, you know, everyone ate the same Wonder Bread. And now you're eating, you know, yeah, you're trying to eat your your 4K Ultra HD bread in a 4x3 toaster, and it's not working out. Have you ever used a toaster oven for for this for this problem? That would have been smart. We used to have a toaster oven, but we never used it, so we got rid of it. I had a toaster oven that I bought at a at um, Goodwill, and it would pop open when the toast was supposed to be done, but it would pop open with such force that it would jerk the entire toaster oven and sometimes the bread would fall out Uh, yeah that's 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 less than ideal yes like if the toaster falls off the counter and you end up with a bunch of shattered glass and toast 
Yeah, and an electrical fire. Right. I like the idea that it's just an outmoded standard, like the same way that shower head heights haven't been updated since people were like on average five foot two. <laughs> right. Yes. I frequently <laughs> encounter this problem as a six foot tall person that like no shower is tall enough nor no tub long enough. Right. Right, right. And the tub long enough, like that's understandable because like you have to that's that costs extra money to make the tub longer. But putting the shower higher wouldn't that wouldn't be hard. Right, yeah, that's absolutely right. I was just thinking of um do you know the YouTube channel Technology Connections? Yes. I don't know it. Oh you you will. He has that episode about this like brand of toaster that he really likes from like maybe the thirties or the forties and he, he gushes about how it's much better than the toasters of uh of the present day. I don't really remember anything about what makes it better, but it's called the Sunbeam Toaster. Actually, after that episode, I was like, oh, I should get one of those. And I went and looked, and it has a whole uh, subculture of people that uh, collect them and repair them, much like... Much <laughs> like Laserdisc players. Laser yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But they're all like $250, and I could not rationalize the... Yeah, uh, I, was, I was imagining it would be like the SP-1200, where you pay $5,000 for it on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, like it just seems like a whole lifestyle that you'd be buying yourself into. I was like, I don't know that I can commit to this toaster. What's the SP twelve thousand? Twelve hundred. It's a it's a sampler. It's a sampler from the early eighties with with two hundred and fifty six k of RAM, but uh, it was very very popular. Uh, and in fact, still is for making uh, hip hop. Right. I see. Yeah. This uh uh th this this Sunbeam toaster. It, it there was something about um it it uses magnets and like it. The, the the magnetic coil heats up as the toaster is heating up or something and so it, it has a it's fully mechanical way of uh detecting when the toast is exactly heated through uh, that's interesting but it wouldn't solve your toast problem right well so i just googled long toaster <laughs> <laughs> oh, and no. that's totally a thing okay apparently like they call them four slice toasters but <laughs> That I feel like that's just uh, that's just a dog whistle. I feel like that's a say that it's like it's a it's a four slice toaster kind of day, <laughs> right? This must be you know uh, I don't eat a ton of bread and the bread that I do eat I try to make myself and it doesn't always turn out that well. But I feel like when you make your own bread it's it's often like kind of the shape of like most of a basketball or something when it's done and <laughs> the, you know there's there's no hope of getting it into toaster sized pieces right so i think uh it's another case where you kind of really have to go to the oven or the toaster oven because uh so the the bread has its shape because you put it in a bread pan right. like presumably the like but i know what you mean like i you know we have a loaf of sourdough that is just a lump and all the all the all the slices of bread are different sizes because they took cross sections of a lump. Right, exactly. Yeah, you have to go out of your way to make a uniformly shaped bread. It requires extra steps, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how much of this is like, you know, in the in the 60s, the 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 in thing was like we're going to fix food with science and food's going to be better and uniform and perfect for you and it'll be better than nature because it's science. I think that's definitely where Wonder Bread comes from. Right, yeah, yeah. And it's also white, like you. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's not a joke, I think. I, I definitely heard some podcast episode one time about like the history of sliced white bread or whatever. And like 
weird, weird racial purity stuff was definitely involved. Right. Yeah. And nowadays it's the opposite where like, no, you want your food to be natural and a lump is way more natural than a square bread. Yes. Yeah, right. The factory produced like food item. Yeah. It, it really, it's, it's star really set, right? <laughs> yeah. I've been since this going through lists of best toasters to buy in 2022. Oh boy. Yeah. There's still mostly seem to be formatted for, uh, Wonder Bread style bread, and they're four by three toasters. You mean? Yeah, yeah. These, are, these, these toasters are in the yeah. academy. They're still thirty-five millimeter toasters. Yeah, the academy ratio. Yeah, so there's a there's a toaster company that keeps popping up called Smeg, um, or at least that's how I pronounce. Oh, this. good, good name. That's that's the <laughs> word that I want to associate with something yeah. I'm going to eat. I and it and all of their toasters have the word Smeg like right on the outside of the toaster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. You think someone has told them? I don't, yeah, maybe they're not an English-speaking company. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think this is a case of, like, maybe a third of the employees know, but that none of them wants to speak up because everybody's <laughs> going to be like, oh, well, how do you know that? Right. It, it's, it's owned by Mr. Smeg, and nobody <laughs> wants to offend him. <laughs> Who is it, like... Jesse Thorne and or John Hodgman of podcasting fame have some like Revel toaster oven that they love and sometimes plug on podcasts. Sounds like a thing John Hodgman would like. Yeah. I've always, I was, you know, I was thinking I don't have either a microwave or a toaster oven and I was thinking about how one of those might improve my life and so I was thinking about getting a toaster oven and yeah, that, it came up like, oh, should I get the the podcast toaster oven? I don't know. <laughs> trying to think of like have i made any podcast purchases like has any podcast advertising ever worked on me and i'm not sure it has you don't wear mac Weldon underwear and or sleep on a brooklinen sheets <laughs> yeah yeah i don't sleep on any of the mattresses that come in a box and explode <laughs> what i've always wondered what sort of marketing research led people to be like yep podcasters they like underwear and and mattresses and things that go on mattresses yeah it's gotta work i mean it's working because we're naming the companies right like they got into our brains but you have to i I definitely have like a a, such a revulsion toward advertising that i often like make a point of not buying a thing that i've like encountered recently in an ad like i'll I'll, if i need a thing i'll get like i'll find what their closest competitor is and buy that one instead I will only make purchases of products that I don't know the name of. Exactly. <laughs> or if I, the worst is when I see an advertisement that I'm like legitimately interested in the product and because I'm like, oh, if I click this, you know, I'm they're going to know, right? They're going to know because of ad tracking or whatever that it worked. But I know also that if I just like open a new browser tab and type the name of the company. And that's because of insidious tracking. They're also going to know about that. So now I have to like, uh, if I want to buy this a different computer. Yeah. I have to like fire up a VPN and make it look like I'm in Finland so I can buy these socks. You have to erase any trace of yourself on the internet. So I can buy socks. So you can buy right. these socks. Yeah. So you can buy Bombus socks, which sponsor every podcast. <laughs> Are you sponsored? I've never heard any ads on your on your shows, and that's that's a superior thing about Topic Lords. No ads. Yeah, no. The closest thing we have to ads is by asking people if they have anything to plug at the beginning of the show. So, like, 
people and the closest like people. I don't know if you would count people talking about a thing they like as plugging it. I, I would count people talking about a thing that they've made. That's sort of an ad. Sure. Yeah. It's not paying for the show. No, it's not. No, no, I'm I'm not. I I, I don't take ads and. Like at this, like at at this level of listenership, this would be like making the show worse for almost no money. <laughs> sure, Listeners, yeah. this episode is brought to you by Four by Three Toasters. Experience toast <laughs> in its original format. We're also brought to you today by LaserDisc. It's an obsolete home video format that will be a big hassle. This episode is brought to you by Constant Angular Velocity. Constant Angular Velocity. The only way you can rewind a movie. Next time, you need to pause something. That's right. Reach for constant angular velocity. I'm glad we finally had an ad, ad segment on this show. I also like the phrase toast in its original format. <laughs> 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 this is how toast originally was. Yeah, right. Don't fall for the hype. In 1954, they introduced, you know, they were trying to compete against TV and the toast had to get wider and, you know, it was all downhill from there. Are we ready for another topic? Yes. I've never been readier. Uh, for this topic, we're going to be reading a poem, which I found on my mom's fridge. I think it was done by Elena, but she doesn't have a memory. My sister Elena, who's been on the show, she doesn't have a memory of doing it, so I can't verify this. I will read it aloud, and then we can discuss it. In my dream, I am a man, festooned with fingers and tiny club for tongue. I lick frantically but miscreant insects still abscond with produce. How, how Kafka-esque. And that's it. I said this when we were originally um, reading the poem before the podcast, but I'm, I'm impressed that your fridge poetry contained the word Kafka-esque. My family has a fridge poetry magnet thing where, you know, you go visit mom and you just write a poem. Sometimes that also means like, here's a new poetry set. So I'm pretty sure there's like a Cthulhu set on there. I'm pretty sure there's like a sex set on there. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then, then there's like literary words. What I like about this poem is that there's this switch over in the middle because lines two through four are alliterative in the style of uh, of maybe old, you know, Germanic poetry, old English and, and old Norse poetry where mm-hmm. instead of rhyming, you know, each line is sort of based on a consonant sound. So you have yeah. this, I am a man festooned with fingers and tiny club for tongue. The meter is not quite right, but it's it's alliterative. And then it switches over in the second half to like, now you don't get rhyme and you don't get alliteration, but, but you get this like miscreant insects and abscond with produce. Like suddenly the the vocabulary level jumps up a little bit. Yeah. I don't know exactly internal rhymes, but there's the these SC sounds. Yeah, uh, miscreant insects. Oh, yeah. yeah. Miscreant insects, outsconned produce. Yeah. Yeah. Is that assonance? I forget what, what you call that. Uh, assonance or assonance, I'm not sure, is when um, two words share their vowel sound. Damn. Even Kafka-esque falls into that sort of... Uh, does. Yeah, it's like funny because this is like a goofy fridge magnet poem but i actually do legitimately kind of like it yeah same yeah no it's well done i actually really like the medium of working in fridge uh, fridge poetry magnet poetry because it's 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 like working within a constraint uh and you can get some really interesting stuff just by like 
these are the words that I have available to me and how can I make something interesting out of it? Sort of Brian Geisen-y cut up poem stuff. Yeah, like is, that. Uh, how close is your kid to being able to read? Is this gonna? Is your sex magnets gonna become a problem for you soon? Or? <laughs> uh, th- I mean, the, the the magnets tend to be on the top half of the fridge, right. but also Winston. I'm guessing he's not gonna read that soon. He's still learning what sounds the letters make. Right. Kafka esque is a good uh, a good early word to learn. Uh, early <laughs> early word to learn. I said that correctly. Yes. Yes, you did. My. Uh, Mother reports that she does not remember what my first word was, but the first word I spoke that I understood the meaning of was hot because I burned myself on a stove. Oh, wow. <laughs> huh. I think the first thing I said was no, and it was contained in a in a sentence. Oh, wow. Which scared my parents. <laughs> <laughs> were you were you like, uh, did you take a while to start speaking and then suddenly you were just fluent? Yeah, I took I took a little while to start speaking, and then I was fluent. And then uh, my mom is a preschool teacher, so she knows a little bit about child development, and was like, "Yeah, you used complex sentences very early," and we thought that meant really good things. And then I turned out to have dyslexia and couldn't read till I was like nineteen, so <laughs> it didn't, wasn't did not did not pan out well. Uh, you but you still can speak in sentences. So far, yes, yes. This this poem reads to me like a like a joke about people not knowing what Kafkaesque means, which is also pretty good. <laughs> yeah, just the problem of miscreant insects does not actually strike me as particularly Kafkaesque. Right, <laughs> it, unless they're filling out paperwork or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe this is like if it was like miscreant insects abscond with my produce ration card. Then we're getting somewhere. You know. uh, I think the Kafka-esque thing that is they're going for is the one where somebody turns into a bug, right? Uh huh. So, in case the listeners aren't aware, this is a, this poem is a, a reference to the scene in Frog Fractions where the frog becomes a person in in, in his dream, <laughs> um, and so there's a transformation involved here, and I think that might be what what the, what the author was going for. I did not catch that. That's okay. I don't expect everybody to know every aspect of Frog Fractions enough to get references to it. I've played through all of it. I'm not sure if I have. Yeah, but like in 2012, like. <laughs> yeah, well, no. I, well, really, I watched somebody else play through all of it because I can't. I'm not good at video games. Sure, sure. My most of my experience with Frog Fractions until I came back to it later, intending to actually see all of it, was like seeing the first turn and being like uh, to my friends, like. Hey, check out uh, this, you know, to try to to get them to see the first thing that happens, you know, right? Right. How many people listening to this podcast do you think are not familiar with Frog Fractions? I would say it's low. Uh, I would say probably most of the people who listen have either played or at least know about it. <laughs> it's like, a, not least because we talk about it all the fucking time. You're so, kind of, I mean, yeah. not, to, not to pigeonhole you, but you're kind of the Frog Fractions guy. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, people tell me that. Like when I want to Im- impress nerds, I tell them that I know the Frog Fractions guy. Yeah, I, I like I like not to pigeonhole you. Like I can't think of anything more pigeonholing. <laughs> <laughs> not to pigeonhole you, but you're the guy that made that one thing one time. <laughs> well, most people go through life without becoming the anything guy. So I think yeah, being the any like something guy is is actually a pretty pretty big distinction. I made frog fractions, and then I made, kept I kept making more frog fractions for like eight years. Leaning in 
into being the Frog Fractions guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I met some people at a party that were opening some kind of video game store in Oakland and I was like, "Oh, uh you should there's I I I know people in the indie game scene and I was like, "I know the Frog Fractions guy." And they were like, "Oh my god." <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. I I felt like I had name dropped some famous musician that I know. Yeah, yeah, it's someone someone from an indie band or something. Yeah, and they asked if they could touch whatever hand touched the Frog Fractions guy, and I... <laughs> have we ever touched? I'm not sure we have. I don't know. I, I mean, you usually try to avoid touching you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> right, because you might turn into a frog. Yeah, yeah, or have a dream that I'm... Have a dream that I'm a frog dreaming that I'm a man. I think we, we might have shaken hands at some point. I'm sure. You're not like a hugger, right? I'm, <laughs> not usually. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a hugger unless people seem like they are huggers. Right. Jim, Jim and I have definitely not touched because uh, we only know each other through this podcast and only because I was an early listener who demanded to be on the show. Right. Oh, wow. And now I've been on the show three or four times. <laughs> D- demands met. This is, yep. uh, this is a pretty common, well, not that common, but like. There are probably like five people who have asked to be on the show, and I'm like, every time I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? God, at some point, someone's going to ask to be on the show, and you're gonna you're gonna not want them to be on, and it's gonna be much harder now that you've openly admitted that pretty much anyone who's who's asked you. Has yeah, been on no, the show. I'll, I'll just say like, oh, yeah, this just just it's been too many lately, or like, sorry, I can't do it. It's the Saint Tuppence Day brouhaha. <laughs> Listeners, you now know what Jim's uh, excuses are going to be. Right. Copy them down in your exam book now. <laughs> right, I, I can't do it. It's uh, and then we're gonna paste your social security number over this phrase. Are we ready for another topic? Yes, ready. Avery, your topic is variants of bowling, now mostly lost to history, are like glimpses into possible worlds metaphysically close to our own. Possible worlds, like worlds where the words "possible" and "metaphysically" were spelled incorrectly. Yes, no one's going to know what that that's that, that's a reference to because we cut out the that's, previous thing. That's great. Listener, we are survivors from a previous universe. <laughs> a timeline that is lost to us. Wait, well, you know, I think it's I think it's that um like 80% of the population remembers metaphysically as being spelled differently. Right. Uh, <laughs> so that means that there's an that, that actually there's been a dimensional split or something like that. Right. This is like how zoomers don't know about Graggle Simpson. uh i don't know if that's a reference to anything or but that's great yeah there's several different ways to approach this topic um in in contemporary metaphysics since the 70s there's been this idea of possible worlds or possible world semantics as a way to uh make sense of possibilities so one example i always hear is jim if one day you come over and um I, for the first time, reach out and touch you on the shoulders and shake you and say, you know, didn't you see me there? Like when you were driving here, you almost hit me. You don't really have a car, but (laughs) there's one way to make sense of that. And that is there is a possible alternative scenario that is coherent in which you did hit me with your car. And the reason I'm so upset about it is that um, possible alternative scenario is actually very metaphysically close to our own that like that was a possibility, but also that possibility is not, doesn't, there's not too much that would have had to change to make that true. 
possible worlds that are met- metaphysically close to our own. Uh, I get this eerie feeling when I see things like candle pin bowling, where it looks like a glimpse into another universe where just a few things have changed. Candle pin bowling is bowling, but with uh, pins that are um, just just kind of straight up and down, and the ball is much smaller, and the configuration of the pins is a little bit different. And it was at one point sort of popular in the United States, and now I think there are only three or four candle pin bowling alleys in the entire country. Uh, and then when, do, when looking into this, I saw that there's also something called duck pin bowling, which is <laughs> where the the ball is is a little bit bigger than candle pin bowling, but a little bit s- smaller than regular bowling, and the pins are short and squat, and also they are configured differently. And there's like no place you can go to play duck pin bowling uh, in in the country, or at least there aren't any bowling alleys that specialize in it. I was going to say, uh, I wonder if Canada counts as a metaphysically close possible world to the United States, because of course we have uh, five pin bowling here. Oh yeah. Ooh. Can you explain a little bit about that, or do you? Well, I had this uh, this one stint of unemployment where I was uh, getting up at four p.m. every day and bowling, but uh, not well. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, so in five pin bowling, there are five pins. I think they're the same size as. No, they're not. They're different. They're um, they have a thing on them. Is this right? Where five pin bowling pins have like a rubber band around them to make them bouncier. Yeah, at the bottom of them. Yeah. They're arranged in a V, and they're worth different points, unlike in 10-pin bowling where they're all the same. And uh, a perfect score in 5-pin bowling is 400, I think, instead of 300, and the ball is smaller. Uh, yeah, but that's like, uh, I think it's more or less unique to Canada, but we also have 10-pin bowling here, and I think like serious bowlers are mostly 10-pin bowlers, and like if you're just going to go fuck around, you, you go and play 5-pin bowling. It's a little easier for kids, too, because the ball is much less heavy. Uh, I just posted a link to a thing that has to a three um, D model recreation of a five pin bowling setup where uh, you can rotate the five pin five pins in three dimensional space and see them from all sides. The amount of like data visualization competence that went into this website is kind of astounding. Yeah, <laughs> like this is a this is a really good looking explanation of. Uh, the differences between different kinds of bowling pins and some, <laughs> some other stuff at the bottom. Like, is this a whole yeah, dimensions.com just like, and the different kinds of balls, like it's all here. This, this site exists to tell you how big objects are. And it looks like it's kicking ass at it. <laughs> it's amazing. This is my new favorite website. I'm looking at these, these five pins and the spacing of them looks like it makes it like, I don't think you ever get a strike with this set. Uh, it's definitely, possible to get a strike but i think it, I, i'm not a good bowler so real bowlers will be mad about this but i think like the way you get a strike in 10 pin bowling is just to hit the center pin dead on really hard uh-huh. uh but in five pin bowling you kind of need some finesse because you need to sort of like throw the front pin left while the ball goes right or vice versa yeah yeah can they bounce around because they've got like rubber bands on the bottom of them i think they just bounce further so you can sort of try to you know if you hit the right spot on the on the edge of the leading pin you can sort of throw it directly you know at the right angle and hit both of the side pins with it or something you know and then use the ball to get the other two that's like sort of the idea and it also i think it makes clearing like um splits a little easier because you can like 
because the pins move more, you can try to hit one of the back pins into the other back pin a little easier. Yeah. Clearly, you need to found found a five pin bowling alley in your area. <laughs> that's right. That's what I need. Found I need an a, alternative bowling league. I need an additional hobby. Yes. <laughs> this is like these restaurants in the Bay Area and stuff that that make uh, like New York style pizza or, or um, Quebecois poutine or whatever. Like some, you know, some regionally displaced specific weird thing. <laughs> right. Right. Except it's also temporally displaced. Yeah, in the case yeah. of Candlepin and Duckpin, for sure, these are like almost extinct bowling styles. Candlepin looks like it would be more difficult, too. It's a smaller ball, and the, the uh, pins are sticks. They seem really tall. Yeah. Like, if, if it falls in the wrong direction, you're going to be really disappointed. Because, <laughs> like, these... I feel like the shape of a regular bowling pin is sort of designed to, like, roll around. Yeah. But these yeah. are just going to lie. Yeah, I feel like these are just going to like fall flat and then maybe roll a little bit to the side, but they're not going to knock down at their adjacent ones. Did we then settle on the best kind of bowling? Is that is that why 10-pin bowling survives? Are these inferior forms? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's certainly the best by whatever metric we use to determine which one to do and keep. That's true. I know that um, some bowlers are like picky about the kind of pin setter. Do you know this thing where like old old bowling alleys have like each pin has like a rope attached to it sort of uh and it resets the pins by like pulling up all the ropes and then setting them back down huh uh which is not how newer ones work but that like the the presence of the rope affects the way the pin moves when you hit it and so like some bowlers like that element of like manipulating the way the pin like sort of swings on the rope after you hit it that's interesting but I think this is another one of these, like, almost extinct. Like, you have to go to a bowling alley that was, you know, built before the electromechanical system that they use now, right? So you have to go to some, like, ancient <laughs> bowling alley to, to experience the, the wonders of the analog pin setting. <laughs> right. The original format, the 4x3 pin setting. <laughs> There's also on this Dimensions site there the dimensions of, I am assuming, famous bowlers. Norm Duke has a height of 5'5". Five, five. <laughs> this site is incredible. How have I never seen this site before? It's going to change my life. Back when I was desperately trying to figure out the volume of, of a parakeet, this site would have been very useful. Yeah, if you needed to know how much liquid to store inside of a parakeet. Right. Like, I was, I was considering, like, getting a parakeet and seeing how much water it displaced. <laughs> so I just searched for parakeet on this dimension site, and I got to tell you that there uh, weren't any results. However, if you oh. just search bird, we have Larry Bird, <laughs> the Bertoya Bird Ottoman, a famous uh, piece of furniture, the Bird of Paradise, the plant, birds of prey, songbirds, birds, seabirds, landfowl, reptiles, turkey, electric rideshare scooter, badminton Haruki Murakami, badminton shuttlecock. Ikea bear bar tray, Maya Angelou worms, Greta Gerwig. So there's lots of things you could find the volume of here. Um, if you looked in one of these uh, bird categories, maybe you would find a parakeet. This is this is very disappointing. Now I now I hate this website. I really think the the obvious thing to do is to get a parakeet, fill a tank up, and drop it into the tank and see how much water was displaced by it. Right. Good hold. Yeah, you need to, you need to know the density of a parakeet, right? That's the the real trick. 
This website will tell you how tall an emperor penguin is and how heavy it is and what its typical lifespan is and also give you some attractive diagrams showing an emperor penguin compared to a person. This is amazing. It also has several other species of penguin. I did eventually find out, by the way, uh, it's uh, 46 milliliters. That's really small. They're small birds. Like if you if you were going to use a taxidermied parakeet as like a water bottle, you'd be really disappointed. Yeah, I would. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna to rip off the head of a parakeet and drink its blood and then refill it with Gatorade. I was thinking more a parakeet flask. So you unscrew its head, <laughs> right. slyly drink out of it, and right, people are right. like, "What? What? Oh, this is just my pet parakeet." Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were drinking on the job. I've had this idea to like intimidate people at at say a sporting event or something where. Um, what you do is you take a bottle of Windex and you wash it out really thoroughly and then fill it with blue Powerade. Yeah. People so would see you apparently drinking Windex in public right. out of a spray bottle and assume that you're like some kind of a maniac and, and become intimidated by you and therefore be, be defeated in whatever, you know, sporting event you were competing in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This, you couldn't lose. <laughs> that sounds like strategies I used to come up with for intimidating people when I was a child. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for the vote of, uh, of confidence in my, I, my I was tactic. A, I was at REI at one point and I was like shopping for a water bottle and I was, I saw this like, I saw a fuel canister and I was like, this would be a great water bottle. I could just go around taking sips from this, this propane tank. <laughs> exactly. Um, like, don't mess with him. He's drinking raw propane. <laughs> He's explosive. <laughs> And I was almost, almost going to do it, but, like, I took a sniff and, like, it actually smelled like it had been used already. Like, this thing already smells like fuel. I'm not going to drink this. Oh, no, yeah. I once uh, accidentally drank some gasoline and I can tell you that it's uh, not pleasant. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, what, were there any long-term effects? Yeah, that sounds... Uh, wow. Well, I mean... Hard to say. I don't have a control group, right? So maybe, right. maybe that explains... Yeah, yeah, you need to... Uh, Jim, what's wrong to... with your listeners? <laughs> Jesus! I said it was accidental. Get off my <laughs> You know, when I was a when I was a kid, I thought um, I thought that it would be really intimidating if I could learn how to use nunchucks. And I um, I did martial arts, and I was at a karate tournament. And like in the eighties and nineties in the United States, at karate tournaments, they would also have people there selling selling like martial arts related weapons. And there was a table that had a pair of nunchucks on them. And I swear, in my memory, I just picked it up and was like, oh, cool. Picked it up and thought, I've always wanted to learn learn these. The, the stick, the part of the nunchuck that I hadn't picked up swung around and smashed my hand. <laughs> and I let it go. And it flew up and hit me in the chin and knocked me on the ground. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it, was like, it was like I had picked up a loaded gun and shot myself. Wow, that's amazing. This is why nunchucks are illegal in Canada. <laughs> yes, they're real weapons. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Avery, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on Bandcamp. Avery Burke, Bandcamp. A-V-E-R-Y-B-U-R-K-E. Or, if you are good enough to unscramble the uh, social security number at the beginning of this podcast... You can just take my identity and you don't need to look me up. Yeah, you can just look at your, look in the mirror. Yeah, look at yourself. You're Avery now. Congratulations. Uh, Jesse, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, 
one place is the Topic Lords Discord, which you can get access to by chipping in some money to this podcast. Another place would be the Discord that I have uh, been running as a reading group for uh, Raymond Smullyan's famous book of logic puzzles and introduction to combinatory logic called To Mock a Mockingbird. So if you're interested, oh my gosh, if you're interested in that, there'll be uh, perhaps a Discord invite link in the show notes, or else you could join the Topic Lords Discord and ask me for an invitation there. We are. Um, Avery, are we finally going to get you on disc Discord? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I've already, I've, I, I, boy, that I love that book. If you're interested in going through it again, or, or maybe you, uh, many people, it seems, fall off of it when it starts getting hard. Uh, and so, uh, if you wanted to go through that in a structured way, we're sort of halfway through the first session right now, but you could catch up, or uh, we'll start another one probably in September. Well, if you're if you're doing sessions of this, uh, do you do you frequently work your entire way through? Like, are you no, so I, I sort of did it once in order to pace it out into sort of weekly chunks that are roughly the same level of difficulty and effort. And then uh-huh. uh, I did that with a friend. And now sort of he and I are sort of helping pe- other people through it if they have questions or like they want to discuss the problems or something without just looking at the solutions that are in the book. Esper, cut this down so it's snappier. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is now just me asking for my own uh, edification. Because I might want to, I might want to join your group. Yeah, absolutely. You should definitely join. If you've gone through all the puzzles before, uh, I'll add you to the certified bird mocker role, so that uh, people will know that you're someone they can go to for help. Yeah, I've gone, I've gone through the whole book, um, and now that I've studied lambda calculus more closely, I feel like it would be a neat experience going back through the book at mm-hmm. some point. Mm-hmm. If you do. Uh... Join that Discord. I'm also going to invite you to the Topic Lords Discord because you belong in there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.